The Small Queendom Podcast, Episode 45. Hi, welcome to the Small Queendom Podcast. This is the host, Leah Graham. I'm delighted to have you today. Here on the podcast, I jam on holistic personal development and lifestyle topics, and my goal is to help you move from surviving to thriving so you can move the needle just a little bit more in your life. I especially want to welcome you to a very special episode of the podcast. This episode was actually recorded on top of a mountain in Nepal on pretty much a spontaneous whim. I am honored to welcome the first male guest, none other than Jared Moon. Jared is one of doTERRA's strategic sourcing managers, which basically means he's the guy on the ground sourcing our essential oils, building relationships, overseeing sustainability, innovating new ways to increase yield, reduce waste, casting vision, and implementing the model of co-impact sourcing. This is the heart and soul of our doTERRA essential oils. Basically, he and the other members of the sourcing team are the people we thank for bringing new oils to the market. If you want to hear about my time in Nepal, be sure to check out episodes 43 and 44. I was especially honored to spend time with Jared while on our Nepal expedition. I was able to get to know more about his role in the company. Um, He is the man that gets the ball rolling and investigates possibilities for new future sourcing initiatives. And I'm really glad to say that I was able to add a few new essential oils to his list. So we shall see. Besides the oils that we obtain from Nepal, India, and Western Europe, we really can especially thank Jared for his work bringing specifically petit grain and manuka oils to the doTERRA market. I got to ask Jared a whole lot of questions and only a few of them were actually recorded and made it onto this episode. But as we moved from place to place, I always noticed how he would forage in the foliage and bring out wintergreen or other various leaves or flowers, crush them up and consider them, smell their aroma, share them with the other members. And one other thing I really noticed is his um, kindness and consideration for the other members of our group and really anyone Um, local that we encountered. It was all very genuine. He's personable and interesting and really overall, he's just a nice guy. It makes me feel really grateful to be a part of the entire doTERRA family. A lot of companies claim to have the same standard of essential oils as we do, and it's just not the case. Those companies do not have Jared Moon's living the life on the road on our behalf. Since its founding in 2008, doTERRA has invested more than $100 million in its vast co-impact sourcing network to provide the highest quality essential oils, and doTERRA's exemplary business practices are expensive and demand constant focus and determination. Because of this, 96% of our essential oils are exclusive or proprietary in terms of source, formula, or both. Consumers should be aware that essential oils that are adulterated are easy to obtain and inexpensive. But doTERRA maintains the highest levels of quality, purity, and sustainability through industry-leading co-impact sourcing practices, which provides more than 100,000 jobs in third world markets, impacting more than a half a million lives. I want to thank Jared Moon and the other members of the sourcing team in other regions for their tireless efforts and sacrifice. And I want to thank our worldwide family of growers and harvesters for the considerable effort and promise to never take a drop of our essential oils ever for granted. This conversation is going to change how you view essential oils forever. And it also has some fun and surprising tidbits included, especially about who is the world's largest consumer 
of essential oils in volume. Hint, hint, it's probably some company you would find at a gas station. I hope you will share this episode with your friends and colleagues, and if you want to, you can tag me at Small Queendom. This has been a really long introduction, so let's just get to my talk with Jared. All right, so this is definitely a first. I'm sitting on a park bench with my iPhone and headphones, and I'm in Nepal, and I am interviewing the first man ever on my podcast. Really? I mean, really the first man mm-hmm. you've yeah. ever interviewed? You, sh- you should feel pretty wow. privileged here. I do feel privileged. But I think that this is really like an inside scoop. So, Jared, the listeners already know what your title is and kind of a little bit about um, your role with doTERRA, but okay. I would love for you to just briefly start and tell us about what a day in the life looks like, whether you're at the office or whether you're in the field. Okay. So at the office, we'll start at home. So I'm based in Luxembourg. We have a small little office. And basically, I spend my day checking emails, responding to emails, whether they're from corporate headquarters or from suppliers all around. Um, checking, we have, you know, tracking our demand and making sure we're on track. So I'm always following and seeing how we're doing on, um, our production numbers in terms of receiving oils and, and things like that. And I spend a lot of the day on WhatsApp, just sending messages to suppliers, um, working with, with the team, coordinating um, per, per, purchasing volumes from different parts of the world. So, yeah, that's a normal day for me. It starts at the moment I wake up, so I cover India and Nepal, um, but then I also help and manage things all around the world. So I literally start the day looking at my phone, and I end the day looking at my phone. So. And how often do you travel? Uh, last year I was on the road about two weeks of the month, um, hoping to reduce that some, but yeah, we travel all the time. And so what does a day in the life look like when you are traveling? So when I'm on the road, it, uh, it's always spent working with suppliers. Um, if I'm, for example, in Nepal here, I'll come into Nepal, into Kathmandu and we'll, I'll visit all the different suppliers and then we'll, in Kathmandu. Um, and then we'll go out and visit different farm farmers, farms, or harvesting regions for wintergreen, for example. So um, it's a lot of time in cars, going to places that no one would normally choose to go to, which is ex- actually a really great thing about my job. I love the fact that I go to places that no tourist would normally go. Um, and then speaking with farmers, harvesters, distillers, um, making sure that things are done properly, that they have the equipment that they need, um, and then uh, moving on to the next spot. So, so just to get a little bit of a picture, these uh, stations aren't really near each other. No, yeah, everything's very far apart, um, especially in India and Nepal. It's, it's one; the roads are not like they are in the U.S. The highway is literally a two-lane winding road through whatever 
I think Tulane is generous. <laughs> <laughs> yes, as you've noticed, they're not necessarily two lanes. But uh, it's more like a one and a half. With, and it's always a little bit unnerving when you have buses coming at you in your lane or in your section of the road. But, so I, I do always, they were making fun of me on the bus for wearing my seatbelt. I was like, that's what I do. <laughs> safety first. <laughs> yeah, safety, awesome. Safety is no accident. But um, yeah, so in, for example, India. We'll go, and I'll spend six days in India. Last time I was there with our colleague Rajesh, uh, or my colleague Rajesh, we uh, we were there for six days, and there, on average, we were on the road on just driving eleven hours a day, and then we had six, no, five internal flights between India. So that doesn't include time in the airport. So it's you get. To, you land in a, a city, you drive four or five hours to visit farmers and harvesters, and then see the distillation unit, make sure that everything's going well, drive four or five hours back to the city, and then either catch another flight or have sleep in a somewhat sketchy hotel, and then fly early in the morning or drive like... Um, leaving at like 3 or 4 in the morning, driving through the night, sleeping in the car while the driver drives, and then start it all over again. This is an incredible amount of energy and resource and time. Yes. And why does doTERRA, or why do you choose to do it this way? Why don't you just stay in Luxembourg? Because uh, it's the, well, I choose to do it because I love it, and it's uh, an amazing opportunity to really see how things are done. And doTERRA chooses to source this way because it's the right way to do it. Um, it's the best way to ensure that we're getting directly to source as close as we can and as much as we can, um, but also to see that things are done properly and well with regards to production, with regards to um, you know, labor conditions and treatment of, of people but also treatment of the environment and how things are, are managed that with regard to the environment. So it's it's very expensive. It's not uh, always pleasant, but it is the best way to do sourcing. Is this a common way people do things in the oil industry? No, it's not common at all. Um, we're very unique in that regard. Um, most, and, and our suppliers and partners tell us this all the time, it's like, never actually had anyone come visit us kind of thing they will sell it to a, um, a larger company a broker or a flavor house or a perfumery and they generally don't come um, honestly it'd be easier to just sit in like like you said Luxembourg and just send purchase orders to all the brokers whether they're in France or in the US they're all based in New Jersey but um, just send them an email say here this is what I need these are my specs send me the oil and that's how 99.9 percent .9 of all of the oil in the world is bought and sold really yeah. so this is something that is unique to us yeah it's unique there are a few like perfumers like high-end perfumers that'll get out and actually get on the ground but they're few and far between so are there other jared moons around the world doing the same thing <laughs> in different regions yes so i uh there's two of us actually based in luxembourg um that do this he, I cover Western Europe, he covers Eastern Europe and North Africa. Um, I also cover India and Nepal. And then I have a colleague that's based in Kenya, 
and we have a colleague based in Australia and a colleague based in Brazil. And so this travel schedule and strategic sourcing, they're basically doing this similar thing exactly in the other places exactly yeah great so yeah so each one of us is divided up the world into different you know subsections and um everyone's there's always at least one of us on the road every month every week excuse me every tuesday we have our weekly meeting and as a team and there's always someone missing because they're traveling would you mind to rattle off all the oils that we source from uh from nepal (laughs) sure uh, so wintergreen and spikenard are the most commonly known. Then we do Himalayan fir. Um, we do xanthoxylum, which is in one of the new kids' blends. We do um, fresh turmeric. Our, our turmeric is a blend of, of fresh and ground turmeric. And so we get a fresh turmeric profile. Our oil comes from Nepal now. We have uh, carrot seed... Um, some basil, um, it's a very small amount, but we buy some. There's uh-huh. 10, I think there's 10, palmarosa lemongrass. Okay, 10. Yeah. All right, awesome, great. Okay, would you mind to go on a little shopping excursion with me? Of course. Okay, Let's so I want you to imagine that we're in my hometown or your hometown. Okay. And we are driving down the road, and we see the health food store coming up. Okay. And they even have a banner that says, we sell essential oils. <laughs> okay. I laugh uh, just because it's not real essential oils usually, but I'll, I'll, we'll go with it. So, I'm um, Jared, there's essential oils. We know about those. <laughs> let's see what they have. Okay. Let's so pop we, in. Let's pop in. Okay. So, we're standing in front of all the shelves of the essential oils, and so many of them are like $9.99, $12.99, What do you see? I see... It's either cut, which means they've added a carrier oil already to it. Um, Castor oil is the number one adulterant that we get. So there's different kinds of uh, adulteration. And economic adulteration is the worst. And that's usually when they'll they'll get a little bit of the oil and then it's basically castor oil. Um, So that, but then the other part is it's not pure and natural. So there's, it could be natural. It could be derived from you know, the actual material, um, but it's not, uh, it's part of it. So, for example, orange. Orange is often uh, broken up into its different um, chemical classes, and usually orange oil is the orange terpenes, and that's a fraction of what um, a pure natural orange oil would be, a fraction of the cost, I should say. And a fraction of the oil. <laughs> um, but yeah, it's it's cheap because it is not the real thing. Um, if you look at something like a, a lavender, it's usually lavendin, which is much cheaper than lavender. I, even I can't smell the difference. Um, it's all about looking at the chemical profile. So, you know, most lavenders on the market are not pure and natural lavender. They're actually a lavendin, or a, a part of, uh, they're a fraction of a, usually a lavendin that's been broken down into uh, the different com- components. So it's, it's, they're cheap because they're not the real thing. So you keep saying pure and natural. Can you, can you sure. uh, 
speak on that a little bit yeah, more. Yeah, so pure, uh, so pure and natural is it? It comes from. It's like so. You went to the still. It's if you go to a distillation unit and you put a glass bottle underneath it and filled that up. That is basically what you're getting. So the only difference between getting it from there to what you're getting in our bottles is it goes through a, a, a filter, a few filter processes to get all of the water out. And um, some. Um, so it's filtered and then uh, what we call dehydrated, which means taking out any of the water. So filtering is partly taking out water, but it's also taking out anything that happened to come through whether it's like a a little flake of of you know the ash or whatever that if it's a fire like we saw um it just cleans make sure there's nothing in it that shouldn't be there um and then so pure is is that it is the the real um botanical um and natural means it's coming from that botanical in that it's not a portion of that botanical, okay? Um, or it's not coming from a synthetic source. You, you know, you can create uh, a number of things. For example, you know, everyone's like, why don't you have birch? Well, birch is like 99, 96 to 98% methyl salicylate. And synthetic methyl salicylate is it's like $3 a kilo, whereas... Uh, real birch oil is a hundred times more than that. Not quite, but uh, it's significantly more. And there's very little out on the market. So you, but you can easily. Uh, here, I'm kind of getting a little off track. I'll come back to that good. question. But um, like, you can easily substitute methyl salicylate in for birch, um, and that's it's. It's not natural, one. But here, the other trick that they do is uh, they'll take wintergreen and sell it as birch. Because wintergreen and, and birch are basically the same thing. And they're 99 or 96 to 98% methyl salicylate. They smell very similar as well. Exactly. I think to the untrained nose. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, so, and, and wintergreen is less expensive than birch still. So it may be natural uh, in that it's it's a natural botanical but it's not the real birch okay so there's uh, there's a lot of that that goes on in the market for example melissa and and there are some companies that sell um um litzia as melissa and litzia is a you know it's not the same thing but they're they have a similar chemistry not totally identical but similar enough that if someone doesn't know they can pull it off um, anyway, so that's, so pure and natural is, pure is, it's, nothing's been done to it. Natural is it's coming from the botanical. That's, that's great. the easiest way to describe it. Okay, so you mentioned that if we're looking at orange or if we're looking at lemon, mm-hmm. it, we're only witnessing part of the chemistry in the bottle. Where's the other part? Uh, it's sold to flavor or ingredients markets, to like, or cleaners, like you look at, like, have you ever looked at, like, what do they call them? I'm just trying to think, like, Goo Gone, the cleaner. That's like, it's a fraction of it's uh, of the lemon oil, right? It's not the complete lemon oil because they're like 
why would we ever sell it as completely? So that it goes into a lot of industrial products and cleaning products. Honestly, a lot of the citruses, that's what it's used for. Um, so they'll take off whatever they want for flavor. They'll take off whatever they think would be used for uh, the aroma, the aroma profile, and then everything else is sold for industrial cleaning. So then do those companies get to say on their label, use essential oils or natural fragrance? Uh, well, there's no regulations, right? So they can unfortunately say whatever they want. And a lot of it is misleading, obviously, um, because money talks. And that's why most of the oils that come from outside sources that we don't work with already, we just reje are rejected because they're not pure and natural. Um, and that's why the testing process is so important. But again, that's again why you can get a, you know, a five dollar orange or a five dollar frankincense. So give me a break. That's not real. So it's 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 not real stuff. So. You said something very surprising when we were having lunch as a group the other day. Okay. And you mentioned that the largest consumer, I guess, of essential okay. oils is what? Uh, Coke and Pepsi in terms of volume. So they buy a select few oils that go into their drinks and soft drinks and flavors. So um, most people don't understand that, but like... Your Coke or your Pepsi, actual Coke or Pepsi flavor is basically a mix of essential oils. Um, clove, um, nutmeg, coriander seed. They're like, that's how you make, you put the right number of oils together in the right proportion, you get Coke flavor or, or uh, Pepsi flavor. But then they also are huge. They're the largest citrus uh, oil buyers as well um, they don't really care about the whole pure well they buy the oil and then they'll buy it, they'll have it broken up into the the fractions that they want um, they use the complete oil in some cases but they also use it for the fractions and that's what they use to make their flavors no. so it's used used for flavors do what do they do with the, the the excess do they get rid of it or they sell it or it's it's sold so they work through brokers usually so they'll buy it and then they'll sell it back to a broker um whatever they don't use and then that broker will then break it apart and then sell the parts back to coke so it's kind of this two-way relationship where their suppliers are also their customers and then from there so the fractions that they don't use are then sold off to other companies um, that and other industries, so they'll either use it for other companies that you can use it for flavors, or like I talked about, um, use it in industrial cleaning products. Thinking specifically of citruses, um, but also um, they can even sell the fractions off to other companies that would then turn it around and sell it as essential oils, quote unquote. Air quotes. There were air quotes there. You didn't see that. Anyway. So that's uh, they, but they don't buy all. They're they're not going to go out and buy spikenard, right? Or or frankincense. They don't use those oils. They have a select number of oils that they're looking at. But in terms of volume, they're massive, and the citruses are the largest percentage of that. 
So I think for the average consumer or the person thinking about, yeah, oils are pretty neat. I'm seeing them everywhere, but they, you know, this company is expensive. So I'm going to buy from this company because really they're all just the same. <laughs> Can you speak to that and a little bit even on the price? Sure. So we talked a little bit earlier about um, how we source and it's very expensive to one, have me as an employee based on who, you know, my background and and all our team's backgrounds, but then to send me to Nepal and India and multiple times a year to go and see and, and be on the ground, that's very expensive. Um, but again, that gen, uh, guarantees our, our ability to um, trace the oils back to source. Um, it's also very expensive to um, do all the testing that we do. Um, a lot of cases we have to do C14 testing. So again, this goes back to that example of, of methyl salicylate and birch, right? Methyl, methyl salicylate or synthetic methyl, methyl salicylate. Um, if you just looked at a GC, you can create the profile to look just like birch chemically with all synthetic pro product um, components. Um, but And so it may look and smell and have the same specific gravity, et cetera, as, as you can create it, an oil to be identical, even though it's synthetic. Then you have to, but to, to know that it's synthetic, you send it out for C14 testing, carbon-14 testing, and that's not cheap. And there's only a few companies in the U.S. that actually do that, um, companies and universities that do that. So all the testing that goes into it, that's very expensive. And then, you know, all the regulations that are behind it. But then... Like it's much cheaper, like I said, to just buy a fraction of of a, an oil, and then um, it it's kind of so a, a, an easy example of of that is like I can buy go to a, a a car dealer and I can get even the same car dealer, right? Like I can there's different classes of of car, like. They may be the same car, and they may come from the same factory, but they're not all the same. There's always a premium one, right? And we are definitely on the high end of the premium because the quality is always there. The profile is always going to be there. Um, and we're not going to cut back on, you know, oh, we can make it a little cheaper by doing, you know, if it's a blend, we, we could, instead of using X, we could use Y, and therefore it's going to be cheaper. Um, we're going to put in the best product, the best oils, and the best ingredients to make it the product that it is. And what about payment to our harvesters or our growers? Yeah, so you guys, when we were at the Wintergreen facility, mm -hmm. you saw, or the distillation, you saw them get paid on the spot. And that's uh, a huge important part to what we do and how we source, is guaranteeing fair and transparent payment and making sure that everyone in the supply chain is taken care of. Um, so a lot of companies, and this happens all the time, um, the, the, a, a farmer will bring his or her material to the distiller, um, or if they're the distiller themselves, they will take their oil to a, 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 a vendor, a broker, um, who will then, and usually this is how it works, they won't pay them until they sell the oil. And often, and a lot of times, like even the big, big flavor and fragrance companies, they won't pay their suppliers until they sell the oil. 
And so you could, you know, and often that's a six month cycle. So you, 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 as a farmer, if I were to do that, like that would mean I would take my product or, um, whether that's the actual oil or the, the biomass, and then I don't get paid for it until six to nine months later. And if something happens along the chain, um, I, I, we hear stories all the time of farmers that still haven't been paid from harvest that they contracted two and three years ago. And it's unfortunately something that happens far too often in, in agriculture and, and in the essential oil world. It's not just essential oils, but uh, like I said, agricultural generally. But it does happen in our, in our industry, and we hear stories about all the time. And we have s suppliers that um, come to us because they know they're going to get paid, and they're going to get paid a fair price. Just because we did visit the wintergreen still recently, and I got to see the young women bringing in their wintergreen, and it was beautiful. I heard something that made me so happy, that originally our growers were getting paid a, a certain payment, but now what they're receiving is almost double. So how do you decide when to give a raise? Because that is incredible. And considering most of the wintergreen harvesters are women, that makes me really happy. Yeah. So again, part of the, the fact that we're on the ground, we can, sh uh, and we're talking closely with the distillers, um, ultimately the, the final uh, uh, entity that's selling us the oil. Um, so there's nearly a hundred wintergreen distilleries here in, in Nepal. So it, I don't have the bandwidth to go to all and to sit there and collect a hundred kilos from every one of them or 200 or whatever. So we work with companies here in Nepal that that's what they do. And we work with them and say, look, we're going to pay you this fair price. So you can pay your distillers the fair price and they in turn pay the harvesters a fair price. And that's by being able to go all the way to source and see the payments going into the hands of the women. I saw that. It was awesome. Yeah. It was so great. They were so happy. They were smiling and, you know, talking to their friends. And it was it was beautiful. Yeah. So that by having that traceability and that visibility and making sure that we're um, on the ground with them, we can ensure that that happens. So it's, it's again, unique. Um, and so here's one thing. A lot of people... Okay, wintergreen. When I started sourcing wintergreen, it was a frac. It was less. It was more than. Uh, it's more than doubled in the time that I since I've been sourcing wintergreen. Part of that is uh, other people have wanted it, so there's more competition, which is great. Um, and I I'm actually very happy with that because it means ultimately the supply chain gets more money, but it also means. It, you know, it's, it's more competition for us, and we have to ensure that we're working even closer with them to ensure that the, the volumes we need are coming to us. But it also means that uh, doTERRA's, the prices don't fluctuate uh, super frequently. Let me, let me clarify. They change prices on, uh, they change prices once on a broad swath of oils since I've been at doTERRA. Um, that's the first time in 10 years they did that. Um, we've adjusted prices occasionally for if we've changed, for example, when we went to the wintergreen, um, from when we changed to the Nepalese wintergreen. Ginger was also a change. Correct. We changed the origin on ginger. That was a price change. Um, those, those kind of things happen, but behind the scenes, 
the prices are always changing. And like I said, we the so in the Nepalese wintergreen, we we launched it, and we set the price. But the price for the raw material has more than doubled since then. But we haven't passed that cha price change on to the consumer ultimately. So yes, they may think we're our oils are more expensive, and they are expensive. But that we more, I would say more expensive than what's in the health food store. Correct, and well, it, you're comparing apples to oranges in that case too, because mm -hmm. you, you know different things. Yeah, you're you're comparing methyl salicylate, synthetic methyl salicylate, to a, a pure and natural wintergreen oil. So yes, of course they're going to be different. But the novice connoisseur or the novice buyer, not connoisseur, the novice buyer won't know the difference, right? Anyway, long story short, like DoTerra's and the the executives have want to make sure that uh, those price fluctuations aren't passed on to. They could easily pass those on to the customer, but they're not because they want to make sure that every household has the ability to buy those oils. And on and sometimes like, well, why don't you launch this really great expensive oil? And they're like, no, because it's out of reach of all, most of our customers. And so, for better or worse, the economist in me is like, well, that's crazy. Like, you should always change the prices, and, you know, you know what margin we needed as a company, so why are you choosing to take sell equivalent of a loss on some oils um so it's it's very important that the oils are affordable for everyone because they want them in in the hands of people who need them and will use them for the benefit of their families for themselves and their communities so, so jared i have heard from many people and you know splatterings online when it comes to let's say let's say citrus consumption okay um of course People don't understand all of the benefits of taking essential oils internally and how they are friendly to the body and incredibly supportive. But one one key point of the critics is, well, if I'm using, you know, several drops of a, cit of a citrus oil or a lemon, that's so wasteful because what happens to the rest of the lemon? Yeah. No, that's a really, uh, that's a great question. Most of the lemons you see in the market are like the beautiful, perfectly shaped correct color lemons, for example. Um, lemons are actually naturally green um, when they harvest them, when they're supposed to be harvested. Um, the ones that we get in the supermarkets in the United States, for example, are beautiful yellow lemons, and that's how we know them. But to get them to be beautiful lemons, you have to... Uh, there's a lot of things that go into that. Um, and they actually ripen them... Um, I don't remember what chemical they use. They put them in a room and they uh, um, add that chemical to cause the 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 green to ch change to yellow much faster. Oh okay. wow! Um, but yeah, a, a normal lemon is is has at least some green in it. Um, anyway, so what what happens in the in the fre so the a farmer say I'm a farmer and I produce a citrus lemon in this case. I will sell my, my fruit to what's called a packing house. And the packing house's job is, what they do is they separate the fruit into different qualities. And that's done by size and color. Um, so all the fancy ones, big, beautiful lemons, those have a premium price. Um, and they go to premium supermarkets or whatever in the United States or in Europe or wherever. 
Um, and then like the somewhat scrawny smaller ones, they're sold at a different price. And then you have, so you have a, they, they separate them out. And then the ones that aren't, they feel aren't suitable for fresh food or fresh market because they've rubbed against a branch or because they're kind of funny shaped. There's always funny shaped lemons. You've, I've seen a, a million crazy shapes, but, um, or they're like green. Then those ones are sold what they call to industry. They're used to make oil and juice. And so, uh those ones aren't wasted they they process the they take a uh a lemon they'll they'll take the oil off of it um and that's usually done with a in italian a spumatrice or a pelatrice and anyway it's no here nor there they they process the lemon to take the oil out and then the oil is, or the the fruit is then juiced so they take the juice and that's sold for, you know... Everywhere. Or everywhere, yeah. You can get lemonade, lemonade right? Or lemon juice. Um, you know, those, like, yellow bottle, plastic bottle <laughs> yes. of lemon juice. That's the same stuff. Um, and then the peel itself, what's left over of the peel is sold for mostly limes. It's used for pectin. Um, lemon is often sold for... Um, animal feed so nothing's wasted everything is used um that's amazing yeah there's there's ze- very there's zero waste when it comes to going through the, the the process actually what ends up getting wasted is fruit that goes rotten and the store isn't sold and that's the fresh fruit market that's very different from the oil market and the oil market is going to use every bit of the the citrus fruit I think that is stellar, especially from a sustainability standpoint. And I think that um, there's many other oils or situations where it, there is little to no waste. If Correct. I'm thinking of like arborvitae or uh, cedar wood, right? Will you mention how um, that oil is distilled or what we use for that? Yeah. So those oils are are uh, they come from wood and sawdust that comes out of the lumber industries. Um, so in some cases, rather than taking the sawdust and, and, you know, turning it into basically garbage that goes to the landfill, it, it, it is, or burned, it's processed and produced an an oil from, or an oil is produced from that. Um, and then in, in many cases, for example, here in Nepal, like the, the wintergreen is distilled and then. They actually use the wintergreen, the, the spent material, to burn the as burned to pr- produce the next batch of oil. So it's this this ongoing cycle of of using the material to produce more of the material. So it's it's uh, yes, there are ways to improve it, and that is part of the, my job is to help reduce um, the impact on the environment. But uh, it's a lot cleaner in many ways than a lot of people even imagine that's wonderful great so a few minutes ago you mentioned this word traceability and i think maybe we probably have talked about it a little bit but maybe we can just um wrap that up with a bow a little bit sure i've I've definitely heard of popular oil companies say that they own their farms and so you can go see that but that doesn't seem very realistic in that setting but i what I'm getting from being here in Nepal and meeting you and meeting Rajesh and 
seeing the people who are on the ground, there is serious traceability here. Yeah. So, yeah, I can, uh, you know, I know where a batch of oil is coming from. For example, in Nepal, each supplier that we use, I know what region they, they, they get their oil from. And in many cases, I can go back to the, the still and the area where that wintergreen came from and see what it's like there. Um, but traceability is a huge thing. If you know the, the chain of, uh, you can call it the chain of custody, and, and see the hands that it went through, then you can ensure that it's pure and natural. Um, if you, you know, using a broker, you have zero visibility into their supply chain. Um, the this idea of 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 you know, owning farms or having farms that's fine but that's a fraction of their their actual volume of oil um so it's just kind of a fancy line they use yeah it, well it's a great marketing campaign right like yeah we know this came from our farm like everyone you know as as consumers especially in this generation we we like to know where our products come from i i'm uh, 100% behind that but it's it's misleading to say that it comes from our farm when only a fraction of it comes from our farm okay well if it's not coming from their farm where is it coming from uh, it's coming from usually a broker okay so occasionally we have to use the brokers when we have uh, uh, a shortage or there's a, an urgency for a certain oil but in those cases, it goes through the same testing process, and in many instances, uh, the oil is is either rejected. Um, there are certain brokers that are actually good, and we have a relationship with that they know what we need and our requirements. And some brokers actually have uh, their own um, distillation units and produce the oils themselves as well. So, uh, you know, we're okay to use those when we need them, but. We get to source on all of the oils that is feasibly possible. Okay? And so, anyway, traceability is important because, you know, it allows us to, to make sure that the impact we're having is a, a beneficial impact on the communities with which we, we work, with whom we work. So, you know, as we're recording this, people are coming up and down and we're seeing local villagers, villagers and I guess I just want to know before we finish with a couple other questions like what's your hope for the Nepalese people because at the end of the day like I want to know about the people that are behind the things that I purchase and consume right it's so important for my family and my community that you know we go to our local farmers markets and under you know know our farmer and that they get a fair price and that they're not just you know making an income they're making a life yeah so what is your hope for the Nepalese people it's the same yeah, that they continue to Make a not just an uh, get a paycheck, but actually have a life and, and and provide for themselves in a way that is something that brings them joy. Right? I think that all of us want to have that. We all want to ensure that our families or our communities are full of joy, and they have that already. But I want them to feel a little less stressed about you know providing for themselves and their families. And so ensuring jobs and, and ensuring that we will continue to buy from them for 10, 20, 50 years. And the owners talk about 110, 120-year timeline. And, you know, their great-great-grandkids, I hope, will continue to be harvesting and distilling wintergreen. And by then, it'll be a little bit different. And it'll be, you know, much more advanced in terms of things that they have access to. 
whether it's clean water, which is why we're here, um, or, you know, public sanitation systems, sewer systems, right? Rather than a, a pit toilet in the back of their, their house, right? So those things are things that I hope improve and continue to evolve for them. But I hope they never change in terms of their culture and their sense of community and their willingness to look out for one another. And, you know, that's what I hope. Our footprint leaves and, and helps uh, facilitate for their communities. That was so beautiful. <laughs> Is it okay if I ask you a few fun questions to sure. wrap up the interview? Of course. All right. I know you're a podcast guy. Yes. What are some of your favorite podcasts? Um... Okay, uh, my um, This American Life is a classic that I thoroughly enjoy. Um, I really like, so that I'm a, an economist by training, and I always like to keep up a little bit on the news and what's happening in the world. Of, uh, so I listen to sometimes The Economist podcasts. Um, there's a, um, American Public Media has one called Marketplace that I listen to. Um, I always joke, there's a one for NPR that's called Up First. It's just kind of a five-minute or ten-minute daily, but my wife and I, I'm like, what's up? Let's listen to what's up. Anyway, dumb joke, but that's one. Um, what's a guilty pleasure? Guilty pleasure is chocolate. I am a total chocolate, like, not just normal chocolate. Like, I will spend $15, no problem, on a chocolate uh, a very high quality chocolate bar. Okay, what is a high quality chocolate? So the sourcing <laughs> I need to geek, know. yeah, the sourcing geek in me is like, I want to know where the beans came from, what part of the, what country they came from, how and who did the actual processing of the chocolate. So I'm like super into the like people and a good equivalent is like the craft brew market, like but like craft chocolate and high end chocolate. So like. The Vene- for me, my favorite and ultimate uh, chocolate is a Venezuel- Venezuelan bean, uh, 100% Venezuelan bean, 70 to 80% cacao. That's like the ultimate chocolate bar for me. And Where, it, where do you purchase such a thing? Uh, <laughs> there's a, uh, honestly, Salt Lake City is like the capital of, of chocolate in the United States, in my opinion. There's a store there that's the number one seller of craft chocolate in in the u.s shut the front door no i'm serious I'm going there in september yeah. it's not far from convention it's called caputo's and they have the best selection of chocolates in the united states and probably the world actually you heard it here folks <laughs> all right of course everyone has to know i won't ask you to name just one okay but i want to know what are some of your favorite essential oils uh, so some of my favorites, uh, Doug, well, sandalwood, Indian sandalwood, Douglas fir. I actually like spikenard, everyone. Um, I know that sounds crazy. Um, but spikenard, I'm actually into recently spikenard and spearmint. Um, it's a good combination for me personally. Um, the oil I probably use most is tea tree. Um, I use a lot of manuka as well. Um, that was one that I was influential in bringing to our market. And I love that oil. It's something I'm very happy and proud of. Um, hopefully everyone gets the chance to use it. It, it, it. Yeah, some people don't love the aroma. I love it. I love the the benefits that come from using it. 
Okay. Um, yeah, those are some of my favorites. I really do like lemon. That's a great standby for me. Best meal you've eaten, and where was it? <laughs> um, okay, that's a. I've eaten a lot of good food, and I'm a foodie if you, by self declaration. Um, one of my best meals. Um, every time I go to Paraguay, um, so I have a, a fond love for Paraguay. I lived there for two years when I was younger. Um, what were you doing? I was serving a, a, a service mission for my church, but I lived there for two years and. I was, you know, a young teenager, early 20, and I always thought the food was awful there. Um, there were some things that were good, but, like, I never, like, got it. But they're one of the best restaurants I always go back to when I go to Paraguay is uh, called Tierra Colorada. And, like, it's like Paraguayan food on steroids, and it's amazing, so... Um, that's one of my, my favorite sourcing trip meals. All right, last question. Okay. What is your dream for the entire essential oil industry? <laughs> uh, honestly, I would love to see the industry change where people are saying and selling, they're selling what they're saying, okay? Um, this will never happen because money keeps that from happening. It's... But I would love for people to, to actually sell pure natural oils, just like us. And I would, I'm a, I think competition is a great thing. I do too. And uh, I would love people to actually compete with us on, on the, the quality of oils that we sell. And I hope one day that that happens. This has been so wonderful. <laughs> Thank you so much. You're welcome. And I think I have to say, namaste. Namaste. I so appreciate the time Jared took to share his insight and expertise and what about that killer definition of pure and natural. Listen, if you're thinking about purchasing from doTERRA, please seek out a wellness advocate that you know and trust. And if that person is me, I would be so honored to assist you. All the information will be in the show notes. Listen, I have a big favor to ask. If you enjoyed this conversation or any other episode on the podcast, would you take about 25 seconds and leave me a rating and review over on iTunes? I would be so, so grateful. Listen, let's talk again next week, okay? Stay strong. Be kind. Bye-bye.